Section 12 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Home Affairs. Meanwhile, the public seemed to have forgotten all about Lord Oxford. Harley, the nation's great support, as Swift had called him, had been nearly two years in the Tower, and the nation did not seem to miss its great support or to care anything about him. In May 1717, Lord Oxford sent a petition to the House of Lords complaining of the hardship and injustice of this unaccountable delay in his impeachment, and the House of Lords began at last to put on an appearance of activity. The Commons, too, revived and enlarged their secret committee, of which it will be remembered that Walpole was the chairman. Times, however, had changed. Walpole was not in the administration and felt no anxiety to assist the minister in any way. He purposely absented himself from the sittings, and a new chairman had to be chosen. Probably Walpole had always known well enough that there was not evidence to sustain a charge of high treason against his former rival, perhaps now that the rival was down in the dust, never to rise again, he did not care to press for his punishment. At all events, he made it clear that he felt no interest in the impeachment of Lord Oxford. The friends of the ruined minister had recourse to an ingenious artifice. June twenty-fourth, 1717, had been appointed for the opening of the proceedings. Westminster Hall, lately the scene of the impeachment of Somers, and soon to be the scene of the impeachment of Warren Hastings, was of course the place where Oxford had to come forward and meet his accusers. The king, the prince, and the princess of Wales were seated in the hall. Most of the foreign ambassadors and ministers were spectators. The imposing formalities and artificial terrors of such a ceremonial were kept up. Lord Oxford had been brought from the tower to Westminster by water. He was now led bareheaded up to the bar by the deputy lieutenant of the tower, having the axe borne before him, its edge turned away from him as yet, symbolic of the doom that might await the prisoner, but to which he had not yet been declared responsible. When the reading of the articles of impeachment and other opening passages of the trial had been gone through, Lord Harcourt, Oxford's friend, interposed and announced that he had a motion to make. In order to hear his motion, the peers had to withdraw to their own house. There, Lord Harcourt moved that the House should dispose of the two articles of impeachment for high treason before going into any of the evidence to support the charges for high crimes and misdemeanors. The argument for this course of proceeding was plausible. If Oxford were convicted of high treason, he would have to forfeit his life, and in such case, where would be the use of convicting him of a minor offense? The plan on which the Commons proposed to act, that of taking all the evidence in order of time, no matter to which charge it had reference, before coming to any conclusion, might, as Lord Harcourt put it, draw the trial into prodigious length, and absolutely to no purpose. Should the accused be found guilty of high treason, he must suffer death, and there would be an end of the whole business. Should he be acquitted of the graver charge, he might then be impeached on the lighter accusation, in what harm would have been done or time lost. The motion was carried by a majority of 86 to 56. Now it is hardly possible to suppose that the peers who voted in the majority 
did not know very well that the commons would not and could not submit to have their mode of conducting an impeachment which it was their business to manage thus altered at the sudden dictation of the other chamber the house of commons was growing in importance every day the house of lords was proportionately losing its influence the commons determined that they would conduct the impeachment in their own way or not at all doubtless some of them most of them were glad to be well out of the whole affair july first was fixed for the renewal of the proceedings some fruitless conferences between lords and commons wasted two days and on the evening of july third the lords sat in westminster hall and invited by proclamation the accusers of oxford to appear no manager came forward to conduct the impeachment on the part of the commons the peers sat for a quarter of an hour as if waiting for a prosecutor well knowing that none was coming a solemn farce was played the peers went back to their chamber and there a motion was made acquitting robert earl of oxford and earl mortimer on the ground that no charge had been maintained against him a crowd without hailed the adoption of the motion with cheers oxford was released from the tower and nothing more was ever heard of his impeachment the duke of marlborough was furious with rage at oxford's escape and the duchess is described as almost distracted that she could not obtain her revenge magnanimity was not a characteristic virtue of the early days of the georges this was what has sometimes been called the honourable acquittal of oxford an english judge once spoke humorously of a prisoner having been honourably acquitted on a flaw in the indictment harley's was like this it was not an acquittal it was not honourable to the man impeached the house that forbeared to press the impeachment or the house that contrived his escape from trial oxford had been committed to the tower and impeached for reasons that had little to do with his guilt or innocence or with true public policy he was released from prison and relieved from further proceedings in just the same way there was not evidence against him on which he could be convicted of high treason and this was well known to his enemies when they first consigned him to the tower but there was not the slightest moral doubt on the mind of any man that oxford had intrigued with the stuarts and had endeavoured to procure their restoration and that he had done this even since his committal to the tower his guilt whatever it was had been increased by him and not diminished since the beginning of the proceedings taken against him but he had only done what most other statesmen of that day had been doing or would have done if they had seen advantage in it he was not more guilty than some of his bitterest opponents the duke of marlborough among others all but the very bitterest opponents were glad to be done with the whole business it must have come to a more or less farcical end sooner or later and sensible men were of the opinion that the sooner the better of harley earl of oxford and earl mortimer as his titles ran we shall not hear any more we have already foreshadowed the remainder of his life and death this short account of his sham impeachment is introduced here merely as a part of the historic continuity of the narrative history has few characters less interesting than that of oxford he held the position of greatness without being great he fell and even his fall could not invest him with tragic dignity 
on december thirteenth seventeen eighteen lord stanhope who had been raised to the peerage first as viscount and then as earl stanhope introduced into the house of lords a measure ingeniously entitled a bill for strengthening the protestant interest in these kingdoms the title of the bill was strictly appropriate according to our present ideas and according to the ideas of enlightened men in stanhope's days also and it must at first have misled some of stanhope's audience most churchmen are now ready to admit that the interests of the church of england are strengthened by every measure which tends to secure religious equality but most churchmen were not quite so sure of this in the reign of george i the bill brought in by stanhope was really a measure intended to relieve dissenters from some of the penalties and disabilities imposed on them in the reign of queen anne the second reading of the bill was the occasion of a long and animated debate several noble lords appealed to the opinion of the bishops and the bishops spoke in answer to the appeal the archbishop of canterbury the archbishop of york the bishop of london the bishop of bristol the bishop of rochester atterbury the bishop of chester and other prelates spoke against the bill the bishop of bangor the bishop of gloucester the bishop of lincoln the bishop of norwich and the bishop of peterborough spoke in its favour the bishop of peterborough's was a strenuous and an eloquent argument in favour of the principle of the bill quote, the words church and church's danger said the bishop of peterborough had often been made use of to carry on sinister designs and then these words made a mighty noise in the mouth of silly women and children but in his opinion the church which he defined to be a scriptural institution upon a legal establishment was founded upon a rock and could not be in danger as long as we enjoyed the light of the gospel and our excellent constitution the argument would have been perfect if the eloquent bishop had only left out the proviso about our excellent constitution for the opponents of the measure were contending as was but natural that the bill if passed into law would not leave to the church the constitutional protection which it had previously enjoyed the bill passed the house of lords on december twenty third and was sent down to the commons next day it was read there a first time at once was read a second time after a debate of some nine hours and was passed without amendment by a majority of two hundred and twenty one against one hundred and seventy on january tenth seventeen nineteen the test majority however by which the bill had been decisively carried on the motion to go into committee was but small two hundred and forty three against two hundred and two and this majority was mainly due to the vote of the scottish members stanhope it is well known would have made the measure more liberal than it was and was persuaded from this intention by sunderland who insisted that if it were too liberal it would not pass the house of commons the result seems to prove that sunderland was right walpole spoke against the bill limited as its concessions were it would be interesting to know what sort of argument a man of walpole's principles could have offered against a measure embodying the very spirit and sense of whig policy unfortunately we have no means of knowing the galleries of the house of commons were rigidly closed against strangers on the day of the debate 
and all we are allowed to hear concerning walpole's part in the discussion is that quote, mr robert walpole made a warm speech chiefly levelled against a great man in the present administration end quote. there is something characteristic of walpole in this he was never very particular about principle or even about seeming consistency but still when opposing a measure which he might have been expected to support he would have probably found it more expedient as well as more agreeable to confine himself chiefly to the task of attacking some great man in the present administration it ought to be said of stanhope that he was distinctly in advance of his age as regarded the recognition of the principle of religious equality he was not only anxious to put the protestant dissenters as much as possible on a level with churchmen in all the privileges of citizenship but he was even strongly in favor of mitigating the severity of the laws against the roman catholics in his history of england from the peace of utrecht to the peace of versailles lord stanhope the descendant of the minister whose career and character have done so much honor to a name and a family claims for him the credit of having put on paper a scheme not undeserving of attention as the earliest germ of roman catholic emancipation stanhope's life was too soon and too suddenly cut short to allow him to push forward his scheme to anything like a perfect position and it is not probable that he could in any case have done much with it at such a time still though fate cut short the life it ought not to cut short the praise the peerage bill raised a question of some constitutional importance the principal object of this measure which was introduced on february twenty eighth seventeen nineteen in the house of lords by the duke of somerset and was believed to have lord sunderland for its actual author was to limit the prerogative of the crown in the creation of english peerages to a number not exceeding six in addition to those already existing according to the provisions of the bill the crown might still create new peers on the extinction of old titles for want of male heirs but with this exception the power of adding new peerages would be limited to the number of six it was also proposed that instead of the sixteen elective peers from scotland twenty-five hereditary peers should be created this part of the bill was that which at the time gave rise to most of the debate in the house of lords at least but the really important constitutional question was that which involved the limitation of the privilege of the sovereign the sovereign himself sent a special message to the house of lords informing them that he has so much at heart the settling the peerage of the whole kingdom upon such a foundation as may secure the freedom and constitution of parliament in all future ages that he is willing that his prerogative stand not in the way of so great and necessary a work the ostensible motive for the proposed legislation was to get rid of difficulties caused by the over-increase of the numbers of the peerage since the union of england and scotland the real object was to guard against such a coup d'etat as that accomplished in anne's later days by the creation of the twelve peers of whom mrs masham's husband was one nothing could be more generous and liberal it might have been thought than the expressed willingness of the king to surrender a part of his prerogative this very readiness however expressed as it was by anticipation and before the measure had yet made any progress set a great many persons in and out of parliament thinking 
a vehement dispute soon sprang up in which the pamphleteer as usual bore an important part addison in one of his latest political and literary efforts defended the proposed change he described his pamphlet as the work of an old whig it was written as a reply to a pamphlet by Steele condemning the bill and signed a plebeian reply retort and rejoinder followed in more and more heated and personal style the excitement created caused the measure to be dropped for the session but it was brought in again in the session following and it passed through all its stages in the lords without trouble and with much rapidity when it came down to the house of commons however a very different fate awaited it walpole assailed it with powerful eloquence and with unanswerable argument the true nature of the scheme now came out it would have simply rendered the representative chamber powerless against the majority of the chamber which did not represent this will be readily apparent to any one who considers the subject for a moment by the light of our more modern experience a majority of the house of commons representing it may be a vast majority of the people agree to a certain measure it goes up to the house of lords and is rejected there what means in the end have the commons who represent the nation of giving effect to the wishes of the nation they have none but the privilege of the crown to create under the advice of ministers a sufficient number of new peers to outvote the opponents of the measure no alternative but revolution and civil war would be left if this were taken away it is true that the power might be again abused by the sovereign as it was abused in anne's days on the advice of the tories but we know that as a matter of fact it is hardly ever abused hardly ever even used why is it hardly ever used for the good reason that all men know it is existing and can be used should the need arise even were it to be misused the misuse would happen under responsible ministers who could be challenged to answer for it and who could have to make good their defence but if the house of lords were made supreme over the house of commons in every instance by abolishing the unlimited prerogative which alone keeps it in check who could then be held responsible for abuse and before whom who could call the house of lords to account before what tribunal could it be summoned to answer the peers are now independent of the people and would then also be independent of the crown there is hardly a great political reform known to modern england which if the peerage bill had become law would not have been absolutely rejected or else carried by a popular revolution walpole attacked the bill on every side such legislation he insisted would in time bring back the commons into the state of servile dependency they were in when they wore the badges of the lords it would he contended take away one of the most powerful incentives to virtue since there would be no coming to honour but through the winding sheet of an old decrepit lord and the grave of an extinct noble family walpole knew well his public in his time he dwelt most strongly on this last consideration that the bill if passed into law would shut the gates of the peerage against deserving commoners he asked indignantly how the house of lords could expect the commons to give their concurrence to a measure by which they and their posterities are to be excluded from the peerage 
the commoner who after this way of putting the matter assented to the bill must either have been an unambitious bachelor or have been blessed in a singularly unambitious wife steele who as we have said had fought gallantly against the bill with his pen now made a very effective speech against it he showed that the measure would alter the whole constitutional position of the house of lords whether as a legislative chamber or a court of appeal the restraint of the peers to a certain number will make the most powerful of them have all the rest under their direction and judges so made by the blind order of birth will be capable of no other way of decision the prerogative as steele put it very clearly can do no hurt when ministers do their duty but a settled number of peers may abuse their power when no man is answerable for them or can call them to account for their encroachments the bill was rejected by a majority of two hundred and sixty nine votes against one hundred and seventy seven in march of seventeen twenty was passed an act with a pompous and even portentous title it was called an act for the better securing the dependency of the kingdom of ireland upon the crown of great britain the preamble recited that attempts have been lately made to shake off the subjection of ireland on to and dependence upon the imperial crown of this realm which will be of dangerous consequence to great britain and ireland the reader would naturally assume that some fresh designs of the stuarts had been discovered having for their theatre the catholic provinces of ireland was james stuart about to land at kinsall had alberoni got hold of the irish catholics was atterbury plotting with swift for an armed insurrection in munster and connaught no nothing of the kind was expected the preamble of the alarming act went on to set forth that the house of lords in ireland had lately against law assumed to themselves a power and jurisdiction to examine correct and amend the judgments and decrees of the courts of justice in the kingdom of ireland and this alleged trespass of the irish house of lords was the whole cause of the new measure the act declared that the irish house of lords had no jurisdiction to judge of affirm or reverse any judgment sentence or decree given or made in any court within the said kingdom this was an enactment of the most serious moment in a constitutional sense it made the parliament of ireland subordinate to the parliament of england it reduced the irish house of lords from a position in ireland equal to that of the house of lords in england down to the level of a mere provincial assembly the occasion of the passing of this act was the decision given by the irish house of lords in the celebrated case of sherlock against ainsley it is not necessary for us to go into the story of the case at any length it was a question of disputed property the defendant had obtained a decree in the irish court of exchequer which decree was reversed on an appeal to the irish house of lords the defendant appealed to the english house of lords who confirmed the judgment of the irish court of exchequer and ordered him to be put in possession of the disputed property the irish house of lords stood by their authority and actually ordered the irish barons of exchequer to be taken into custody by black rod for having offended against the privileges of the peers and the rights and liberties of ireland the act was passed 
to settle the question and reduce the Irish House of Lords to submission and subordinate rank. It was settled merely, of course, by the strength of a majority in the English Parliament. The Duke of Leeds recorded a sensible and manly protest against the vote of the majority of his brother peers. One or two of the reasons he gives for his protest are worth reading even now. The eleventh reason is, because it is the glory of the English laws and the blessing attending Englishmen, that they have justice administered at their doors, and not to be drawn as formerly to Rome for appeals. And by this order the people of Ireland must be drawn from Ireland hither whensoever they receive any injustice from the chancery there, by which means poor man must be trampled upon, as not being able to come over to seek justice. The thirteenth reason is still more concise. Because this taking away the jurisdiction of the Lord's house in Ireland may be a means to disquiet the lords there and disappoint the king's affairs. The protest, it need hardly be said, received little or no attention. More than sixty years after, when England was perplexed in foreign and colonial troubles, the spirit of the protest walked abroad and animated Grattan and the Irish volunteers. But in 1720, the Parliament at Westminster was free to do as it pleased with the Parliament in Dublin. To the vast majority of the Irish people, it might have been a matter of absolute indifference which Parliament reigned supreme. They had as little to expect from Dublin as from Westminster. The Irish Parliament was quite as ready to promote legislation for the further persecution of Catholics as any English Parliament could be. The Parliament in Dublin was merely an assembly of English and Protestant colonists. Yet it is worthy of remark that then and after, the sympathies of the people, when they had any means of showing them, went with the Irish Parliament simply because of the name it bore. It was, at all events, the so-called Parliament of Ireland. It represented, at least in name, the authority of the Irish people. So long as it existed, there was some recognition of the fact that Ireland was something more than a merely conquered country held by the title of the sword and governed by arbitrary proclamation, secret warrant, and drumhead court-martial. Death had been busy among eminent men for some few years. The Duke of Shrewsbury, the King of Hearts, the statesman whose appointment as Lord Treasurer secured the throne of Great Britain for the Hanoverian family, died on February 18, 1717. William Penn, the founder of the great American state of Pennsylvania, closed his long, active, and fruitful life in 1718. We have here only to record his death. The history of his deeds belongs to an earlier time. Controversy has now quite ceased to busy itself about his noble character and his life of splendid, unostentatious beneficence. His name, which without his consent and against his wishes was made part of the name of the state which he founded, will be remembered in connection with its history, while the Delaware and the Skykill flow. Of his famous treaty with the Indians, nothing perhaps was ever better said than the comment of Voltaire, that it was the only league between savages and white men which was never sworn to and never broken. Addison died, still comparatively young, on June 17th, 1719. 
he had reached the highest point of his political career but a short time before when on one of the changes of office between stanhope and sunderland he became one of the principal secretaries of state his health however was breaking down and he never had indeed the slightest gift or taste for political life pity said mrs manley the authoress of the new atlantis speaking of addison that politics and sordid interest should have carried him out of the road of helicon and snatched him from the embraces of the muses but it seems quite unjust to ascribe addison's divergence into political ways to any sordid interest he had political friends who loved him and he went with them into politics as he might have travelled in company with them and for the sake of their company although caring nothing for travel himself no man was better aware of his incapacity for the real business of public life addison had himself pointed out all the objections to his political advancement before that advancement was pressed upon him he was not a statesman he was not an administrator he could not do any genuine service as head of a department he was not even a good clerk he was a wretched speaker he was consumed by a morbid shyness almost as oppressive as that of the poet cowper in a later day or of nathaniel hawthorne the american novelist later still his whole public career was at best but a harmless mistake it has done no harm to his literary fame the world has almost forgotten it even lovers of addison might have to be reminded now that the creator of sir roger de coverley was once a diplomatic agent and a secretary of state and a member of the house of commons some of the essays which addison contributed to the spectator are like enough to outlive the system of government by party and perhaps even the whole system of representative government sir roger de coverley will not be forgotten until men forget parson adams and robinson crusoe and gil blas and for that matter sir john falstaff and don quixote for some time things were looking well at home and abroad the policy of the government appeared to have been completely successful on the continent the confederations that had been threatening england were dissolved or broken up the jacobite conspiracies seemed to have been made hopeless and powerless the friendship established between england and the regent of france had to all seeming robbed the stuarts of their last chance james the chevalier had no longer a house on french soil paris could not any more be the headquarters of his organization and the scene of his mock court the regent had kept his promises to the english government it was well known that so far from encouraging or permitting the designs of the exiled family against england he would do all in his power to frustrate them as indeed he had an opportunity of doing not long after never before perhaps never since was there so cordial an understanding between england and france never could there have been a time when such an understanding was of greater importance to england at home the prospect seemed equally bright walpole had contrived to ingratiate himself more and more with the prince of wales and had become his confidential adviser acting on his counsel the prince made his submission to the king and acting on stanhope's counsel the king accepted it the sovereign and his heir had a meeting and were reconciled for the time at least walpole consented to join the administration content for the present 
to fill the humbler place of paymaster to the forces without a seat in the cabinet he returned in fact to the ministerial position which he had first occupied and from which he had been promoted and must have seemed to himself somewhat in the position of a boy who after having got high in his class had got down very low again and is well content to mount up a step or two from the humblest position walpole knew what he was doing and must have been quite satisfied in his own mind that he was not likely to remain very long paymaster to the forces although he could not by any possibility have anticipated the strange succession of events by which he was destined soon to be left without a rival for the present he was in the administration but he took little part in its actual work he did not even appear to have any real concern in it he spent as much of his time as he could at houghton his pleasant country seat in norfolk townshend too had been induced to join the administration to him was assigned the position of president of the council thus there appeared to be a truce to quarrels and to enmities abroad and at home there was no dispute with any of the great continental powers there was no dread of the stuarts ministerial rivalries had been reduced to concordance and quiet the traditional quarrel between the sovereign and the heir apparent had been composed it might have been thought that a time of peace and national prosperity had been assured in the history of nations however we commonly find that nothing more certainly bodes unsettlement than a general conviction that everything is settled for ever End of chapter 10 Recording by Pamela Nagami